Hey ya girlies, it's me, Devlin Camp. This is a special queer serial announcement coming to you from the future, 2023. You're listening to an episode from the past, during which you might hear me plug some bonus content, especially in the credits. But as of 2023, here's everything you need to know if you want more queer serial, or if you want to support my many ongoing LGBTQ history projects. I got a lot going on. You can sign up for periodic email updates at the link for everything in the episode notes. First off, you can now listen to my entire backlog of Queer Serial bonus episodes on Apple Podcasts, just like you listen to the regular episodes. Just head to the Queer Serial show page on Apple Podcasts and subscribe to additional bonus episodes for $2.99 a month. Those episodes are everything from my Patreon, minus the visual stuff, but all of the bonus episodes. It includes all of the spin-off episodes, Forgotten Fairy Tales, the White Knight Riots interviews, all of my Mattachine meeting interviews, Randy Wicker Radio, etc., 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 every episode of everything I've ever made. Subscribe now on Apple Podcasts for $2.99 a month, or still for $3 a month on Patreon if you want the bonus episodes and all of my visual research and my archive dives included, and behind the scenes of my Randy Wicker documentary. Also, If you're a Spotify kind of girl like me, you can also get all of my bonus episodes through Spotify now too. Just go to the podcast section and search Queer Serial Bonus Shows and there's a whole feed of Queer Serial Bonus Shows. And if you wanna get some gay merch while also supporting my queer history projects, check out the new Queer Serial Etsy shop. Etsy.com slash shop slash queer history uplift. There's a link in the episode notes here. I've got podcast merch from throughout the series and also lots of queer history related items like postcards from Mona's 1930s lesbian bar and Marsha P. Johnson stickers with her own handwriting that says gay love always straight from the Wicker and Johnson archive that I've been working on. And I've got gorgeous mugs that say queer history is world history. Other stickers that say drag is not a crime with a real photo of drag queens being arrested. And I've got these warning stickers that you can put in textbooks that are lacking queer history to warn future readers. Lots of other buttons and other stuff on Etsy too. There are links to everything in the episode notes here and at QueerSerial.com or just search for me on Instagram, Etsy, Patreon, Spotify, and Apple Podcasts. I think that's everything. While you're on QueerSerial.com, by the way, check out the new episode guide. You can explore the entire podcast series episode by episode with all the research and transcripts and bonus episodes and lots of photos and videos from the true history that I cover, all at QueerSerial.com. Finally, last thing, you don't have to, but if you'd like to, go ahead and catch up on all four seasons of Queer Serial and the bonus episodes before season five comes out this October, Queer History Month. The new season is a standalone story in our history and a spin-off of an event that I briefly touched on in Season 3, Episode 7, if you want a hint. Stay tuned. Thanks so much for all of your support. I literally couldn't do it without you. Enjoy the show. If there is a core to Harvey Milk's support, it's along this street, Castro Street. This is a center for the homosexual community big issue in the gay community. Gay people are simply afraid to walk the streets at night. Beatings are an everyday occurrence here in the Castro neighborhood. I think in the future, any policeman who hassles anybody, gay, black, Chicano, or whatever, will think twice now. Dan White, on the other hand, 
felt that he stood for the traditional uh, morality of an older era. He felt that he was the heir to a great and long political tradition. He was an ex-policeman, tough on law and order. That's where I see a strong potential for a backlash. An issue of a, a recent apparent increase in police harassment of gay people, of blacks, of transvestites in the Tenderloin. What thought have you given to this? Again, Har Harvey's death was a great interruption in, in all of our lives. I'm Will Roscoe, and this is Give Him Hell Harry, the man who kept Harvey Milk's dream alive. I want the gay community to be absolutely clear as we think about San Francisco as some sort of mecca for gay people. We are not liked by an awful lot of people in this town, including some uh, police officers and uh, we are going to have to act as a community to deal with anti-gay violence. It may be the number one thing we have to do as a community, and I'll be a part of pulling that together. Episode 2, This Crazy Jewish Guy with the Ponytail. In 1968, at the age of 30, Harry Britt had reached the low point of his life. He had aspired to be a Methodist preacher, but now his marriage was over. And after the assassination of Martin Luther King Jr., he left the ministry. He drifted back to Dallas and got a job working at a hotel. Bit by bit, he pulls himself together. He quits smoking, and he begins to lose weight shooting hoops by himself in the searing heat of Dallas summers. But he has yet to acknowledge, even to himself, that he's gay. Finally, in 1971, he decides it's time for a change. He moves to San Francisco. Between 1969 and 1973, at least 9,000 gay men moved to the city by the bay. And the queer scene is bursting out of the Polk and Tenderloin neighborhoods and popping up in the Castro, Haight Street, and south of Market. There are drag balls, dance clubs, leather bars, restaurants, and softball leagues. But Harry is clueless. He moved to San Francisco, he told me, because it was just somewhere. He lives in a flat off Polk Street and struggles to find work. He almost goes back to Texas. Then one day, he walks into the Hilton Hotel. Someone had just quit, and Harry is hired on as a night auditor. Turns out that hyperactive brain of his is good with numbers. He figures out that most of his co-workers are gay, but Harry still isn't letting on. Finally, in 1973, he leans against the closet door, and it starts to crack open. I read an ad in the Berkeley Bar by a man, I don't think I want to say exactly who he was, but he, he wrote a sex advice column for a very prominent heterosexual sex magazine. But he was gay, and he never had had gay sex. And he was not as old as me, but 
because I was like 32, 33. But he was not a uh, what we call a spring chicken back in Texas. So uh, the ad was, I need somebody to come, to come out with. So I answered the ad. He, we agreed to meet. Now this guy is Jewish. He's from New York City. He was had been living in Paris for most of his adult life. We were not, you know. It, we, I was the little Methodist preacher from Texas. There was no nothing. We, I said, "Well, let's meet at a gay bar," and that was fine. Except neither one of us knew where there was a gay bar. Now I had been living on right half block off of Polk Street, but I didn't know where any gay bars were. I, you know, sometimes you know, real, you know. Would you like to swing on a star, you know, Bing Crosby? That's me. I'd, I'd rather be a mule sometimes. And I was a mule. I, I had no clue where the, where the hay was to, to, for my feed. But you've had the moment. Somewhere between Chicago and now, you're coming around to knowing that your feelings are sexual, they're for men. Well, and well I'd, maybe you, I'd, maybe I'd, you'll I'd act on it. I had known since kindergarten that I wanted something from the other boys. Yeah. Sex, I, I, you know, sex was something men and women do. I had no, I was really, really, I've been reading a, a good book that explains how smart people can do dumb things. And I like <laughs> to think that I fall into that category. But I think it's better to just say I was a dumb person. I had no, no clue at all about how to do this. Um, it was like deciding to run for mayor of Istanbul. You know, I, I just wouldn't know how to do it. So we couldn't find a gay bar, um, but there was a bar on Sutter Street that I thought might be gay, so we were going to meet there and then go together and find a gay bar. And the name of the bar was, let's see, my super memory can't remember the name of the bar. It's on Sutter Street. And it was a lesbian bar. So um, my friend came and he walked up and I was peeking out the window and he was walking up and down Sutter Street kind of, I don't know, looking for me to check me out or something. I don't know what he was doing, but he paced a lot. And I figured that had to be him because otherwise he would have been a lesbian. So he came in and uh, we met. and. With our incredibly different cultural backgrounds and our total ignorance of homosexuality, within 30 minutes, I felt closer to him than any other human being I've ever known in my life. There was no sexual thing between us. But, you know, he poured out his heart, I poured out my heart, and it was just like, it was like Miranda in, you know, the brave new world that has such people in it, experience that. I was not the only person in the world like me. Well, it was an even though I could say New Yorkers, I, I never had a conversation with a New Yorker before, except <laughs> Joe Namath, maybe, <laughs> who was an Alabama yeah. New Yorker. <laughs> uh, so we had a, you know, we just made the scene, and and we went for months. Then we went to Total, and we went to. Midnight Sun, and we went to the rendezvous, and 
and they end up and I don't know about the end up I guess we went to the end up we we went everywhere Pope Street <laughs> we went to the um, and we went to the No Name Saloon we've been to the No Name Saloon and uh, Sweet Lips in the Tenderloin uh, I I did go, what was Sweet Lips's place oh I, I did you're right. go, I did go there oh it was called something silly I can't remember either uh we went to the we went to the tenderloin uh, we went everywhere and um, then uh, he at some point and I actually lived with my friend from New York for a little while when I was in the process of of moving and uh, he ended up going back to New York I stayed at his apartment when I was a delegate to the Democratic Convention in New York uh, had sex with a beautiful 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 a man from San Francisco, but we're not writing that kind of a thing. No, but we do. We, we, we just, just, just to keep our our, our listeners happy. It's good. We're happy to know that you're now getting some. Not very in much. Your life. Not okay. very much. Okay. And it and it wasn't. I never was very good with the sexual stuff. You weren't down at the uh, VD clinic exchanging numbers no, while you're waiting in line. I never went to the VD clinic. Um. No, I never, I never, I never mastered sexuality because to me, partly because sexuality for me was something you have to master, <laughs> and that kills you right off. So uh, I never, I never really had a satisfying sex life. I had sex, but I never really. Uh, I was always afraid to go with the person, and I missed a lot of opportunities and. Because I looked okay back, I, I was I made myself competitive. I was weighing 165 pounds at the time, contact lenses. What I was crying all the time, and I played pool at Toad Hall, and I went there. You know, I worked all night, and I went to bed, and I got up, and I went to Toad Hall. That was my life. I was maybe the biggest customer Toad Hall had, and when that place closed, I was extremely sad. I went to the other bars too. I was a bar guy. There was a paper that had nothing in it except information about where to go. It wasn't the BAR or the Sentinel. It was another little paper that you got in the bar. And I read it and I went everywhere. I went to the gay softball league games and the community softball league games. And I went everywhere. But I just sort of watched other people do things. I didn't, I wasn't really a player. But, and I drank, I had never drunk at all in my life. Uh, I drank a lot during that period um, not in an alcoholic kind of way but it was a way because I was so nervous that I would uh, I remember one night at the Twin Peaks I gave the bartender a $20 bill and I said just give me stuff <laughs> and he didn't he didn't want to do it that way because it was against the rules but I, I, I drank a lot of gin and tonics mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. and I really think that affected me my brain I, I really I really think I hurt myself because I drank so much in a short period of time and then I quit again because I didn't I never really got off on the alcohol I just got off on the relaxation you know the, the, the state of mind that I was in mm -hmm. So I remember those days with great, even though I was a neurotic mess, I, it was so wonderful. 
you know, the, I will never be part of the putting down of the Castro scene or the Folsom scene or the Polk scene in that period of time. Um, it was so liberating for me, and even with the alcohol, uh, it was it was just joyous. Yeah. Uh, it'd be hard for the younger generation to appreciate oh, yeah. the liberation zone of the bar vis-a-vis -vis the world outside the bar. It was. It and was, why we fought so hard for it. It was. Uh, at one point I was working, I was working for the post office, but I was working on Sunday. It was a mail handler. And they made me have a lot of overtime. I think... I mainly quit the post office because I could not get to Castro Street at four o'clock on Sunday afternoon, which is when I liked to go. I, w I was I was hooked. In the years that follow, Harry keeps up his self improvement. He spends time at the Esalen Institute on the Big Sur Coast, and he works with therapists. He corrals his friend Tim Wolfred into taking disco dancing lessons, and he becomes a Castro clone. Okay, wait, wait, Will. There are kids at home wondering what you mean by a Castro clone. <laughs> a look, a style. Gay men presenting as masculine. Uh, and it was a revolt against the stereotypes. Uh, while other people were embracing the stereotypes and declaring their non-masculinity and calling themselves sissies and then radical fairies, exploring drag, there were others who wanted to assert that, that I am not a helpless sissy, I'm a serious person. Also, uh, it's sexy. Gay men were just beginning to define each other as their sexual types. As you know, in the history, for the longest time, uh, the gay guy wanted a straight man, a uh, rough trade, and um, not another sissy. Uh, so there was this huge realignment um, around gender expression, uh, around what was valued or what was not valued, and the Castro clone emerged out of that. Where did this trend began? Clone and um, uh, there was a, a wacky scientist who started talking about cloning humans in the early 70s. Uh, the word got ab absorbed from that discourse um, into Castro clone. Now, I don't know that the guys were calling themselves Castro clones. I think others uh, watching them said they look like clones. They're all dressing the same. It's a bit of a read. Yeah, 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 yeah. Uh, by the time I hit here, 1977, 1975, uh, by 1977, it was, it was pretty stomping around with boots, jeans, and starting to work out in gyms and all of that. Were there certain bars where you would see it in particular? Well, of course, Toad Hall, um, several of the bars on Castro Street, not on Polk Street, which was still an active gay scene, but 
there was more like uh, street kids, and that was a center for the drag queens and some of the bars that they liked to hang out with. Now, um, south of Market was another story. This was the leather scene, and it's leather jackets, the caps, the straps, the harnesses, the Tama Fidland look, which was uh, much more severe than um, the Castro look, mm-hmm. uh, and you know had a, this darker side, and, and with it, the sexuality that uh, one assumes that people who are dressing like that was doing, the bondage or S&M and the role-playing and all that sort of thing. And there was a lot of S&M bars. On, on uh, Folston Street, you could uh, jog your way down and stop off at four or five different leather bars and uh, bathhouses that uh, catered to um, uh, the leather community. Now, if you wanted to put up a historical marker that says the Castro clone was born here, the site of the Toad Hall bar on Castro Street would be a good choice. In the early 70s, gay men are flinging off guilt and shame like dogs shaking off water after a swim. The stereotype is that gay men are wimpy sissies. So they put on tight jeans and tank tops, cut their hair short, and grow mustaches. They become sexual athletes competing for the gold in masculinity. And they hang out in bars like Toad Hall. It has a motorcycle suspended from the ceiling and a pool table. Men lean against the walls, chug beers, and admire themselves in each other. I confess, I tried to be a Castro clone. At the store, you'd find a pair of unwashed, shrink-to-fit jeans already so tight you could barely squeeze into them. Then you shrink them. If you wear them without underwear, your crotch was squeezed into a well-sculpted bulge. Harry's a guy's guy, and Toad Hall is his heaven. With his night job, he can spend his afternoons playing eight ball, and as he put it, being a clone. He dabbles in politics. He hangs out at the McGovern Campaign Headquarters. He even joins the Alice B. Toklas Club. More on them later. But then he starts hearing about a hippie politician, an openly gay man with a ponytail, who owns the camera store up the street and is trying to get elected to, well, whatever he can get elected to. The camera shop, Harry discovers, is a permanent campaign headquarters. He walks in one day in 1975 and is quickly recruited for Harvey's second campaign. It proves to be the turning point in his life. It was Harvey. And still, I don't understand why I supported Harvey Milk. He was running against Rick Stokes, who was... Uh, an active member of Bethany United Methodist Church where I went to church frequently it's not a very big church and I did not know a valley where I lived for part of this time uh, I knew Rick I liked Rick Rick was doing really good work as a, a human rights lawyer a gay rights lawyer uh, and you know, he was a Methodist and then you've got this crazy Jewish guy with the ponytail. I, I, it's hard for me to explain why I picked Harvey. 
But you, uh, did you become aware of him on because you're hanging out on Castle Street so much? No, he wasn't. He didn't spend his time hanging out 18 hours a day at Toad Hall. He had a he had a business to run and a life to live, and the lover. No, I met him because I I went to his camera store and and volunteered. Um, and I really cannot explain it. Uh, I'm way past you know. Lord's God's will and type stuff, but it just something in me that that recognized that I was in a change period, that I couldn't make all my decisions based on all my values, which were much more like Rick Stokes' values. That I that in order for me to move, it's kind of the way people respond to Barack Obama, I think sometimes, and I I just felt like. You know, this is exciting, and and he was exciting, um, and the people around him were exciting. We we were pretty much always in the campaign mode, which is great. Harvey believed in that. He thought that that our our movement should be a campaign, and not just a movement in the sense that you go out in the street and and complain about stuff. You do that, uh -huh. but but there had to be a sense of victory about it, that you organized around issues that you could win. And most important was his election, getting getting a progressive queers in a position of power so that they would have to deal with us instead of us always having to deal with them. That was his mantra. That was what he was about. So we, that's what we knew how to do. Now, I was never good at knocking on doors and ringing doorbells. I can't do, I still can't do that. I, I was not a good foot soldier. But I could sit around the camera store with Harvey and talk about politics and, and work on the literature and all that kind of stuff. And I was good at that. There's always some infighting and competition in gay activism and politics in all <laughs> you <laughs> notice that yes in every story there seems to be someone stirring up trouble outside of Harvey's circle who were the other gay people in politics at the time the Alice people and some of those included Jim Foster you know an early and liberal democratic activist gave one or one of the first speeches on the floor of a Democratic convention, and I think that was 72. There was Joe Daly, who was uh, a personal friend of Feinstein, and had a her marriage ceremony. It wasn't yet a true gay marriage, but it was in Diane's backyard. Oh, wow. Um, oh, gosh. There was a, um, Pat Norman, who served on the Health Commission, ran for supervisor at one point unsuccessfully. There was David Scott, a gay real estate person who ran for mayor at one point unsessfully. The Alice B. Toklas Memorial Democratic Club. You'll hear that name a lot. Harry refers to them in shorthand as the Toklas people. Now, if you've never lived in San Francisco, this rivalry, so central to Harvey Milk's story, might be hard to wrap your head around. All these people, Jim Foster, who co-founded the Society for Individual Rights, SIR, and later transformed SIR's political action group with Del Martin and Phyllis Lyon into the Toklas Club, 
David Goodstein, the millionaire who owned the leading national gay publication, and Rick Stokes, whom Harvey would defeat to become supervisor. They're all liberal Democrats. And everyone wants queer people to be able to live open lives, protected from discrimination and violence. They all vote for liberals like George McGovern. The difference is in their strategies. Harvey Milk is convinced not only that the strategy of the tokeless people isn't working, it's holding us back. As far as the tokeless people are concerned, Harvey is an attention-seeking sideshow. In fact, Harvey isn't the first gay man to run for supervisor in San Francisco. That honor belongs to the legendary drag queen, Jose Saria, who won 6,000 votes in 1961. By the time Harry comes to San Francisco, liberal politicians are already courting the gay vote. The first time I saw Dianne Feinstein was at an annual ball of the Imperial Court in 1975. Between the grand entrances of lavishly costumed queens, Diane strode onto the stage and waved. The Toklas Club is the first gay democratic club in the country to be officially registered with the party. But the Toklas game is insider politics. Their membership is weighted toward business people, professionals, and real estate agents. They invite candidates like Feinstein to speak at their dinners, and they make endorsements. The problem is, for all this courting of liberal allies, the community has little to show for it. In the mid-70s, no openly queer people have been appointed to any of the city's nearly 400 commission seats. There's no comprehensive law protecting LGBTQ people from discrimination. And in the streets, anti-gay violence and police brutality are rampant. When Harvey asks for Jim Foster's endorsement for his first campaign, Foster tells him the time isn't right for a gay supervisor. In fact, it could trigger a backlash. The Toklas Club never does endorse Harvey for any of his four campaigns. Harvey flies by the seat of his pants, or at least when he has them on. He tosses out political ideas like Oscar Wilde making quips at a party, save the neighborhoods, free public transit, Recycling centers. Harry Britt will spend years distilling these ideas. So if you want to understand Harvey's politics, you need to listen to Harry. Okay, now I can... Did we talk about the gay politics before Harvey at all? First, we need to do some introductions. You'll hear Harry refer to Bob Ross. Ross had moved to San Francisco in 1956 and eventually started the Bay Area Reporter, the BAR, a weekly gay newspaper. Over the years, he did well for himself, and today there's an LGBTQ senior center named after him. Ross was also involved in the San Francisco Imperial Court. The court was founded in 1965 by Jose Saria, with support from the Tavern Guild, and each year staged a lavish ball where drag queens competed to become Empress of San Francisco. In between balls, they raised funds for charities. In the 60s and 70s, imperial courts popped up in cities throughout the West, from Los Angeles to Seattle, and as far west as Denver. Even Eugene, Oregon, where I went to college, had a court. The Tavern Guild goes back to 1962. 
Back then, police raids and payoff schemes were driving gay bars out of business. So they got together to fight back, setting up a network to alert each other to raids and hiring lawyers to defend patrons and employees who got arrested. The Tavern Guild and the Imperial Court were not exactly political organizations, but they knew how to bring people together and raise funds. They laid the groundwork for queer politics in San Francisco. The, the pre-Harvey Milk political world in San Francisco was essentially a time when politically, we as a community were very weak. There were a few individuals who had relationships with the establishment, but the average lesbian or gay man was not politically engaged with mainstream politics. There were three groups. There was the Bob Ross group, the, the people who sustained and in most cases profited from the ghetto. Uh, and I don't mean these were bad people. The, uh, Troy Perry, uh, you know who Troy Perry was. Um, the, the community institutions within the ghettos um, were vulnerable. Their police raided the bars. Individual gay folk were vulnerable to harassment by the police and so forth. So there was a strong support system. The Tavern Guild was very, very important. And the BAR and the Sentinel and other, you know, the, the gay media. These were all intra-ghetto institutions. The, the gay softball leagues and... And the court system. And, and Yes, definitely the court system. Well, the court system... Well, I don't know, maybe I shouldn't say that, because, I mean, I mean, Bob Ross was in the court system, and there was, and, and some of the other bar owners were, I mean, there was an overlap between the, the royalty and the business, the lesbian gay business world. But yes, the court system. Uh, now, court system behavior, you know, to me, is obviously not, is somewhat maladaptive in terms of the mainstreaming of the gay world, you know. So that, you know, dressing up turns people off in that other world out there that we don't always feel comfortable in anyway. So anyway, that, that was group A. And uh, for a lot of those people, Harvey Milk worked very hard to court those people. He really sucked up to Bob Ross, big time. And, uh, and some of the others, too. Um, I wasn't as good at it, partly because I didn't have to be, because I had a different constituency base than Harvey, and but partly because uh, I was so horrible at parties. And to go to a big drag event and perform the way, you know, to be the way Tom Amiano can be at a big drag event, I, it was just torture for me. I just, uh, not just, I don't mean to single out the drag events, I was felt the same way about any big social event. Okay, so there's that group. Uh, then there was the, the gay left, uh, 
which was more left than gay in some respects. I was on the Coors Boycott Committee with Howard Wallace and Claude Wynn and one other person. That was the Coors Boycott. I was, uh-oh. And that was gay left. But it was an economic issue, and we used, you know, gay economic power as a ledge, a leverage against Coors Boycott. So the gay liberation movement, and those people, um, those um, who weren't so much about electing supervisors as they were about having marches and, and you know, and I was that was I was much more comfortable in that world. Um, and then there was the uh, the gay political establishment, which was mostly the Alice B. Toklas Democratic Club. Everybody who was politically active that wasn't on the gay left, hardcore gay left, was in Alice, and, and certainly including. Uh, everyone who then became part of the Hard Meal Club. Um, now, the the polit- uh, so you've got those those three groups. Now, Harvey Milk did not. He I, he I, he felt that all of those political strategies had been developed in a period when we were weak, and that if people who were weak in the past are to be strong in the future. They must move beyond the strategies they had developed based on their weakness, whether that is the ghettoization, you know, the creating a safe place, or whether it's sucking up to the establishment, or whether it's throwing rocks. Those are all strategies from Harvey's point of view that are understandable when you're weak, but will not move you into the place of power that he wanted for us. Um, one of my favorite things I used at New College was an article by W.E.B. Du Bois about Booker T. Washington, you know, attacking Booker T. Washington as coming out of a weaker time for African Americans and. Mm-hmm. Adopting strategies of appeasement to the white South that were not not helpful for the future, and I've always thought that that uh, Booker T. Washington versus W. B. Du Bois was very similar to Harvey Milk versus the gay establishment that preceded him. So politically, it may be that the thing that occupied Harvey's mind more than anything else was getting the queer world to move from the Booker T. Washington strategy to the W.E.B. Du Bois strategy. Okay, so Harvey wanted us to take, it became a matter of what do you do with your anger? And he felt that the the lesbian gay establishment, mostly gay, um, repressed their anger. They, They dressed nice, they talked nice, they gave money to the Senator Cranston, they they behave themselves, thinking if 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 we make it easy for straight people to support us, they will support us. Um, that's something Booker T. Washington talked about also in different ways. The uh, and of course the you know for for the bar tavern guild, you know 
The first politician you want to be nice to is the judge, because the judge can get your people out of jail at, at two o'clock in the morning on Saturday morning. So you you, you supported judges a lot, because uh, you didn't expect anything from the legislators or the mayors. Or, they weren't really able to respond. So Harvey wanted to take the, his people were the angry people. And a lot of them were um, the uh, men who wore dresses and women who wore butch attire because they, they had less going for them in terms of accommodating to the establishment. Somebody like Terry Henderling, you know, just isn't going to make it at the at the Kiwanis Club, and and so he liked those people, people who were free to challenge the values of the establishment rather than conforming to it. So he he wanted the street people. He was always said his politics was a street politics. They uh, Anita Bryant phenomenon in Dade County was important because it it got us out into the street, um, not dressed up, and making noise, and uh, which is a, you know a left thing, but it wasn't just a left thing. It was a community building around strength, not weakness. It was pride. It was it was saying you know. Uh, we are family. We we're here. We're queer. The whole business. That to him that was a necessary building block, and he felt we should never quit doing that sort of thing, which I think basically we haven't. So he he was really saw as his enemies, and I do this as a generational thing. I, you know, I I can understand and appreciate. Not everybody can be Harry Hay, you know, or Jose Saria. It's very understandable to me that people who, the generation before me even, would not all be Harvey Milks. It, it, it just, it was hard. So there was something about Harvey that was a 70s thing that would have been very hard to be a 60s thing, you know. I think, Jose Saria could have had maybe some of the success that Harvey Milk had, had he lived a little bit, or had he been in his prime a little bit later, he outlived Harvey Milk. Uh, you, ha you had to have the Jose before you could have oh, the Harvey. Absolutely. Yeah. In 1976, Harvey is fed up with the liberal democratic machine. He decides he needs his own power base. So a group of his closest allies start the San Francisco Gay Democratic Club. Later, it will be called the Harvey Milk LGBTQ Democratic Club and become one of the most influential and progressive groups in the city, or the state for that matter. Harry's job is recruiting. One by one, he puts his arm around their shoulders and invites young activists to a meeting. Harvey gives him another role as well, building bridges to the unions. Harvey had won union allies when he organized a boycott of Coors Beer by gay bars in support of the striking Teamsters. 
the Coors family, was homophobic as well as anti-union. And the Teamsters agreed to hire gay drivers. When Harvey ran for supervisor in 1975, he won the endorsement of the Building and Construction Trades Council, the Laborers' Union, and the Firefighters. In 1978, two measures on the ballot will give Harry a unique opportunity to strengthen Harvey's alliances with unions. Proposition 13, on the ballot in June, will cut property taxes with huge giveaways to big business. Because it would lead to drastic budget cuts in local governments, which would hit people of color the hardest, Harvey considers Proposition 13 racist. Unions oppose it for the same reason. Jobs are at stake. Six months later, Proposition 6, the Anti-Gay Teacher Initiative, appears on the ballot. Both measures are the handiwork of a right-wing state senator named John Briggs. The reason you wanted to be elected to high office is so you can recruit and convert every young adolescent. <laughs> Proposition 13 passes, but the bridges Harry builds to labor play a key role in defeating Proposition 6. It's a nail-biter, but on November 7, 1978, 58% of the voters say no to Briggs's homophobic initiative. What a night! Triumphant queers flood into Castro Street, and none is more jubilant than Harvey Milk. As I mingle in the crowd at the No. 6 headquarters, Harvey struts onto the stage with the disco queen, Sylvester. But just three weeks later, triumph will turn into tragedy. As president of the Board of Supervisors, it's my duty to make this announcement. Both Mayor Moscone and Supervisor Harvey Milk have been shot and killed. Suspect is Supervisor Dan White. This was the other victim today, the man in the suit, Harvey Milk, the most unorthodox politician, a homosexual elected not in spite of it, but because of it, in a district that is largely homosexual. As a member of the Board of Supervisors, Harvey Milk championed homosexual rights. The one supervisor who consistently voted against homosexual rights, even voted against a gay rights parade this year, was former supervisor Dan White. Dan White, army man, firefighter, cop. Square-jawed, thick-armed, his hair slick with pomade. He had been elected supervisor from an Irish working-class district on the southern edge of San Francisco and sworn into office on the same day as Harvey Milk. They're on opposite sides of nearly every issue. Harvey votes to put a youth center in White's neighborhood that White opposes. White is the only supervisor to vote against Harvey's gay rights ordinance. Harvey tries to make nice with him from time to time, but he considers him a closet case. Don't knock it unless you've tried it, he tells him. 
Life inside City Hall is a daily cycle of tedious meetings, calls from disgruntled constituents, and intrigue at the water cooler. When I visited Harvey Milk in his tiny office, a month after he was sworn in, he said, You wouldn't believe what goes on here. And he rolled his big eyes. But Harvey is in his element, while Dan White is over his head. When votes shift and promises are broken, White feels betrayed and humiliated. He has anger issues. Ten months after being sworn in, he resigns. Problem is, the real estate developers and the police union are counting on his vote. They had put him into office. So they call a meeting, and Dan changes his mind. He tells Mayor Moscone he wants to withdraw his resignation. But it's too late. Moscone, with Harvey urging him on, decides to replace him with someone who will be a reliable vote for their issues. On the morning of November 27, 1978, White loads his police-issue revolver with hollow-point bullets and drives to City Hall. To avoid metal detectors, he crawls in through a basement window. He makes his way to the mayor's office, and he unloads four bullets into Moscone's body, two to the head, execution-style. Then he reloads his gun and goes looking for Harvey. So I get awakened in the morning. Uh, by 9 o'clock, I think I'd had calls from him, everybody else I knew. <laughs> and the people in the house had gotten together and we sort of invited, invited everybody over. Not, it wasn't even necessary. People came. Everybody wanted to help. Uh, for we had our job was to deal with the night, the march. We knew that we didn't have a choice about whether there would be a march or not. There would be a march, and we just wanted to be sure that the we wanted we wanted to offer to the communities a sense of hopefulness more than anything. I mean, it wasn't so much how much we hate Dan White that we did, but that wasn't helpful. But what needed to be done was that, okay, this is a, a terrible tragedy, but Harvey's work has not ended. It's just that we're more important now. We, I mean, all of, the, all of the people who believed in Harvey's stuff. So uh, Joan Baez, you know, volunteered to sing. Uh, Bill Graham donated sound equipment. Um, People just, uh, you know, all of the, somebody put posters up all over the Castro saying where to meet. You did that? Good well, um, uh, I, I was at the Pacific Center yeah. um, waiting for Harvey's office to call me back. I put a call in. Yeah. Uh, then I got word that there was a candlelight march and just, I made signs at that point. I had learned how to poster the city in about two hours. Okay, well, thank you. For and so I went through the hate, the pulp, the castle with my little flock. It was just amazing because you'd think, as president of his club, I would have been just incredibly busy that day, but I wasn't. Things just happened. It was just like it, it's like it had been planned in months ahead of time. It, things just nobody was petty. Nobody had an ego. Everybody just you know, what can I do to help? And we had some awfully smart people doing some awfully good things. And the day uh, 
What did not happen was we didn't have a chance to grieve. Uh, I didn't want to grieve because, again, we wanted all who saw us to see hopeful. You know, nothing has changed in terms of where we're going from here. It's something terrible has happened, but, but we're still, Harvey's work will go on. So uh, just getting through the day, I remember I hadn't, I hadn't had any sleep. Now, um, there was a little group of people, and I don't know who it was. I know Dick Pabbage was involved. I know Chris Perry was involved. I know I was not involved, who decided that I should be the person to speak at the candlelight march. So that the mayor would think of me as a successor to Harvey. That was 100% of the reason. I don't know if any of them knew whether I could give a good speech or not. I hadn't really given that many. Um, Had they heard the tapes yet? This is Harvey Milk speaking from my camera store. This is to be played only in the event of my death by assassination. I don't know the answer to that. I think so, or at least somebody had. I think so. They didn't tell me that they wanted me to speak for that reason. They just said, Harry, we want you to speak. And it wasn't an optional. I mean, it couldn't have been optional. I remember as I was marching down Market Street, a woman in the next row back, someone asked her, well, who's going to be supervisor now? And she said, there's a, a postman that they've decided to appoint. <laughs> now, I was not a postman, but I had been a few months before, and I knew they were talking about me. <laughs> that got me to thinking. But see, I was... 10 minutes away from making this big yeah. speech and was still planning what to say because I hadn't had time to prepare anything. I never did prepare anyway ahead of time much. So, uh, um, so we got to City Hall and um, I went up to, it was, it was a, a, we hadn't grieved, but it was a very moving moment to see because, you know, to see the community all out there and not screaming and yelling. It, again, I, I'm, I'm sure I mentioned to you the, the candlelight march in Heidelberg when JFK was, and I thought back to that because there too, there wasn't, anger was not the mode. It was, and, and these were Germans, they weren't even Americans, and they were just so profoundly affected by what had happened, and so committed to what JFK, in their minds, had stood for. And you could see that about our people, too, that Harvey was not that universally loved figure that he may be portrayed as now. You're, I think you know that. He was had lots and lots of enemies. He was very, the work he did to get the, the Bay Reporter behind him was very, it paid off a lot. I could never quite have done that, I think. But he really, he really, really uh, 
worked Bob Ross and Lane Pride. Um, so Harvey never had been uh, uh, you know a universal uniting figure in the community. But he was that night, and there was a sense that maybe either people got it all of a sudden, or they at least said understood that this is not the time for us to be fighting among ourselves. This is this is this is a moment that will determine our history, and might take us back into the closet and might take us somewhere else. So you could sense the how important that moment was not just important for those of us who loved Harvey, but important in itself. And now I've been, I still had Nanny sleep since yeah. Saturday night and was supposed to be at work at 10.30. <laughs> um, and this wasn't a job where you could not, where you could be late or not go because I worked by myself with the security officer that there wasn't anybody else there. Oh, there was a bellman there, sorry. But none of them could do my job. So um, I wasn't thinking about work, but I knew that I wasn't going to get any sleep that night either. So I gave my speech. Harvey had a very special dream for us, very similar to Martin Luther King's dream. He wants us to go to Washington. He wants us to go in the hundreds of thousands and to stand on the steps of the Capitol and say to America, we are here, you're going to have to deal with us, we're not going to wait until we're fully accepted in the society. This, this city and this country are not going to get rid of Harvey Milk this easy. And as long as his spirit is with us, they're not going to get rid of gay people this easy. We're here. We're going to let them know the dream of Harvey Milk until it filters into every village in this country. Make your plans now. Remember the feelings of this hour to go to Washington next July and to stand as we stand now, not because it was Harvey's dream, but because it was a vision whose time has come that the prophet Harvey Milk gave to us. If there was any way I could tell you how much he loved all of you, I would. Let's be faithful to him. I, I think I was, I really felt good about what I said. I mean, I, it was so important to me to get it right, not, not as an ego thing, but I was speaking to some people who really needed to hear something, and to the media who really needed to hear something, because, you know, to them this was another... Simonese Liberation Army story, or another mm -hmm. Jonestown story, mm -hmm. and to me this wasn't anything like those. Uh, this was this was about gay people and, and our lives, and and uh, I don't. Uh, all I can remember that I said was that that we knew, those of us who knew and loved Harvey, that when he was elected to the board, that he was going to bring something very special to the city, that something about San Francisco was going to be different. I'm starting to cry now. Mm -hmm. And uh, those were the people, you know. It, uh, it, oh God. I haven't thought about that night too much. 
because it wasn't the loss, you know, it doesn't matter if he never passed the law. It was, it was about the redefinition of queer power in the city. That night, I stood with 20,000 mourners in San Francisco's Civic Center Plaza. Our faces lit up with candles, our tears shining in the dark. And then I ran. I was late. I was supposed to be at work at 10.30. I didn't. I was late. I had called them and told them I might be a little bit late. And I went to work, and I stayed up all night, and I... At about three o'clock in the morning, Bill Cross came to the hotel. I, I heard Diane. Diane spoke first, I think, and I heard Joan Baez. Cause I just, uh, I just went. I don't remember how I got to work, but I, I, I probably took a cab. I was working in Japan town. So, Bill came, three o'clock in the morning, and. It was a very nice time with Bill. Again, I was totally exhausted, and just I was just with Bill. It wasn't so much what we talked about. We didn't know what to talk about. Um, I know I told him that I wasn't going to be the next supervisor. There was no chance of that, and I, I didn't fully explain why because, you know, my whole social anxiety disorder and stuff was never something I talked about with anybody. But the idea of I knew of living the lifestyle that Harvey lived. Unthinkable for me. Just, it was just un, not conceivable to me. What happens now? The San Francisco Charter says that the president of the Board of Supervisors, and that's Diane Feinstein, will be acting mayor until such time as the full board, by majority vote, elects a new mayor to serve out Moscone's term. By the time the Board of Supervisors meets again, it will have buried its old mayor and will face the problem of not only choosing a new one, but two new supervisors as well. The next day, a group of Harvey's closest friends gather at Harry's apartment, one block from Castro Street. They're devastated. Some had been with Harvey since his first campaign in 1973. Each feels that knowing Harvey has changed their lives none more than Harry Britt. They're determined to fulfill Harvey's last wish. If a bullet should enter my brain, let that bullet destroy every closet door. I wish I had time to explain everything I did. Almost everything was done in the eyes of the gay movement. I stood for more than just a candidate. I, I have never considered myself a candidate. I have always considered myself part of a movement, part of a candidacy. I considered the movement as a candidate. All eyes turned to room 200 in San Francisco's City Hall, where Diane Feinstein now sits at the mayor's desk. Who will she appoint as Harvey's replacement? At stake is not only the progressive agenda Harvey championed. His election was a toehold to power for the LGBTQ community. He had won a place at the table. 
and Harvey's friends are determined that the queer movement in San Francisco not go back to the era of ingratiating liberals and assimilating to mainstream culture. But more than that, keeping Harvey's dream alive is the only way they can bring themselves to accept his loss. They have to convince or push Diane Feinstein to appoint one of Harvey's people. I ask for a movement to continue, for a movement to grow, because last week I got that phone call from Altoona, Pennsylvania. In my election, gave somebody else, one more person, hope. And after all, that's what it's about. It's not about personal gain, not about ego, not about power. It's about giving those young people out there in Altoona, Pennsylvania's hope. You gotta give them hope. Next week, episode three White Knight. Give Em Hell Harry is written and hosted by Will Roscoe. She's produced by me, Devlin Camp. You can find tons of info about this show and other Queer Serial podcasts at QueerSerial.com. And follow me on Instagram and Twitter at Queer Serial for all sorts of images from the stories on the podcast. And for bonus episodes and lots of queer history deep dives, join me over on Patreon. You can support Queer Serial for $3 a month and get the entire backlog of bonus episodes, including a full series on the 1955 Boise, Idaho gay sex panic, It Was Wild, and a brand new series of interviews with protesters who attended the White Knight riots. I'm talking to rioters who were there on the street about why they did what they did that night in 1979. And I could hear a police baton in my head, the whoosh swing like a foot away or something like that and I'm running like hell and suddenly the crowd turns back and I'm forced to run toward the police and fortunately I wasn't in the front the front of the line just hit the police and the police went down on tomorrow's bonus episode I'm chatting with Jerry the fairy She's a fab, older, radical fairy who came to San Francisco looking for gay life and ended up being there for some of the biggest riots in our history. You've been to so many riots. (laughs) Oh yeah, I I do riots. Listen to that interview tomorrow on Infamous Crimes, the White Knight Riot interviews, only on my Patreon. Meanwhile, on Castro Street, people were throwing hundreds of Twinkies out the window. (laughs) And there was just a rain of Twinkies all over the street. They got squished by cars and... Also on my Patreon, you can listen to spinoff history episodes of Queer Serial, dive into my research with me at the Queer Archives, and find all sorts of homo history odds and ends. There's a link in the episode notes to patreon.com slash queerserial. Thank you for your help preserving and sharing queer history. Hey, girlfriend. In this episode, you told the story about when you visited Harvey Milk in his office and he said, you wouldn't believe what goes on here. Did you get to interact with Milk or work with him very often? No. Um, There was that meeting. um, I think uh, uh, seeing him on the street, which you you did. uh, And then the next time was um, when we were... Uh, bearing down on United Way to get funding for a gay social service agency, mm. we had a we demanded a meeting and uh, went in to have a meeting um, about this. 
And um, the meeting went on. Uh, and then and it wasn't really getting anywhere. And there was representatives of multiple uh, uh, agencies. Anne was there. And a United Way guy kind of looked at Harvey funny and triggered him. And Harvey rose up out of his seat and he did, we called it the point. It was famous. And yeah. he pointed and he said, don't you smirk at me. Blah, 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 gay community, blah, 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 power, blah, 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 blah. And then the meeting fell apart. And we were all standing on the sidewalk outside. Carol Migdon and Cronenberg and so forth. And Harvey said, you know, I was kind of worried when I lifted my arm that my jacket would come up. He lifted his jacket up and there was no pocket. You could see his boxer shorts. Mm. It was his, you know, cheap secondhand suit that, that he had. Wow. So that was the other time. And then he um, recommended me for the No on Six campaign. And I would see him coming around from time to time. Did you interact with the Topless Club people very often? Never. Not even run around with them in the bars or anything? Mm, okay. Um, I was doing voter registration. I think there was some collaboration because they were doing some as well. But I don't have any memory of any of them. How would you have gotten so good at postering the, the city so quickly? Well, I had a car. Okay, uh, and, you know, you make your Xeroxes, you have your tape, your, your staple gun. And you know where the parking places are, and you just go lickety split. You know, laundromat, telephone pole, bar, blah blah blah. Next neighborhood. Had you done that a lot before? You did I guess so. Thing? It wasn't the first time. Yeah. Um, I'd probably done it with no one six literature. Yeah. Big thanks to our fabulous sponsors: the Harvey Milk LGBTQ Democratic Club. The One Archives Foundation. The GLBT Historical Society. The James C. Hormel LGBTQIA Center at the San Francisco Public Library. You got it. (laughs) Oh, Smiter. The Sisters of Perpetual Indulgence. (laughs) The Making Gay History Podcast. Shaping San Francisco. And Lady Joey Kane and our fiscal sponsor, Calamus. And everyone who supported the show on Indiegogo. Especially those on the highest tier, including Susan Gray, a.k.a. Marianne Singleton. Sam Tupperman-Gelfont and Pat Gorley. Sharon P. Johnson with big hugs. And an anonymous longtime supporter of Queer Serial. Thanks, Mattachino. This podcast is produced with the support of the Murray Hong Family Trust in honor of the legacy of Stephen O. Murray. And thanks to Cass Brayton at the Archives of the Sisters of Perpetual Indulgence. You can support the sisters at thesisters.org. And thanks to Anchor SF for providing a fantastic recording studio for the podcast. Special thanks also to Daniel Nicoletta for providing photos and Harvey Milk's complete audio will. Audio is used courtesy of the GLBT Historical Society, KPIX-TV, and KQED San Francisco. Music is by Blue Dot Sessions. Thanks for listening! Very cute.